0: If you are not learning and you're not growing, you should jump out of whatever it is you're doing into something else. You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. And I'm Yaniv. And on today's episode, we're gonna do listener Q&A. We haven't done these for a few weeks and we love doing them. Listeners have emailed in some questions via our form, via social media, and we're gonna run through some of the best ones and give you our best answers.
1: So Yaniv, what's the first question? So our first question is from Amir in Sydney, and he asks, what are a few factors that should lead a startup founder to not follow the advice of others? or quote-unquote industry practices, seemingly working for other startups. And he's particularly interested in scaling product teams in the startup space.
0: Great question, Amir. We've spoken a few times on the show about taking advice and being careful about taking advice, which is perhaps ironic, perhaps appropriate, given that we give a lot of advice on the show and we always mention how cautious you need to be about that. There's a little bit to unpack here, right? Because there is taking advice from others generally. There is taking advice about industry practices. He mentions those in quotes, and he mentions taking advice that's seemingly working for other startups. And so there's actually perhaps a slightly different answer depending on which parts of this you want to focus on. Taking advice from others. I've mentioned this a few times on the podcast before. You want to be careful about taking advice from people who are drive-by advice givers. So they're kind of random people you're bumping into and taking lots of advice from lots of different random people who don't have a stateful relationship with your company and may have their own biases, their own experiences, their own strategies that they would play out. And their advice might be right if you play it out as part of a strategy, but might be wrong for the particular strategy you're in the midst of executing. And so you wanna be careful about taking thrashy, Bits of tactical advice that don't line up to a particular vector or strategic through line. That's something you want to be careful about. And you want to be careful about taking general advice from people who haven't actually built anything at scale. Some VCs love giving advice, but have never been operators. Some small business founders might give advice to startups. As you've probably heard throughout our show, startups and small businesses run in very, very different ways. And so you want to make sure you're getting advice from people who've built and run startups at scale and have had some amount of success doing that. And the other part of the question is, when should you ignore, quote unquote, industry practices that seemingly work? And we touched on this in the episode with Marty Kagan, where we talked about this concept of domain dogma, where there is this idea of industry best practices. There are things that have always worked in an industry. A clear example is Tesla introducing over-the-air updates for their cars, which would have been unthinkable prior to them doing that. GM and Lamborghini and Toyota would never, ever have considered sending firmware updates to their cars. And that was an example of breaking with industry dogma to go back to first principles and to rethink the problem from new cultural norms, new technology capabilities, and new business models. And so you actually want to be very, very careful about taking advice based on domain dogma on industry practices and rethink problems from first principles so that you can disrupt those industries. And then the heart of this question, if we unpack it properly, is about what's seemingly working for other startups. And that's one that I think I do a lot. I think there's a lot to learn from the greatest tech companies in the world, be it Amazon, be it Facebook, be it Google, Uber, and so on. I think actually a lot of founders that I bump into don't take enough lessons from those companies and really take those lessons to heart or they're taking the wrong lessons or they're applying the lessons at the wrong time. And so I think taking the right lesson at the right time from the right company can actually be a cheat code. And you don't actually have to reinvent a lot of these startup mechanics. You only need to take some of the startup best practices and apply them to new problems and new industries to disrupt and break the mold.
1: When you take advice from others, you need to make sure that A, they understand your context and B, you understand their context. Meaning your startup is a complex interdependent beast where the culture and the organization and the business model and the business strategy and your opportunity costs are all mixed in together. So when someone says, you know, one of the most common types of, Chris, you called it the drive by advice is like, you should build this feature. I'd love that feature. Well, the people who give you that advice are doing it without knowing what your strategy is, without knowing the opportunity cost of building that feature, without understanding the broader user set. So taking advice like that when they don't know your context is really problematic. And then in the other direction, you talked about learning from other startups, working at other startups, and Chris, I. agree it's a cheat code, but it's one that you need to apply very carefully. And I go back to what I would nearly call it a cautionary tale at this point, which is Spotify released a document years ago talking about how they structure their product teams into squads and tribes and guilds and and all of this stuff. And they were just writing this blog post to talk about how they did things. But for whatever reason, it hit a hit a note. It resonated. People started calling this way of structuring teams. The Spotify model. And then you'd go to a bank and they'd say, Oh, well, we're implementing the Spotify model at our bank. And they'd rename all the departments into tribes and all their their feature teams into, into squads and stuff like that. But what they were missing was the underlying cultural context behind Spotify, which is a lot of the things that we talk about. Again, I think going back to what Marty or Casey Winters mentioned in our podcast episodes with them about really empowered product teams, about focus on outcomes about autonomy at the team level, if you just take the structure and the nomenclature from Spotify without understanding that broader context, then you are really putting lipstick on a pig. And so I think what that comes down to is make sure that the advice is both given and received with adequate context. Context is king. And my last podcast I called Context Matters because it was
0: all about restoring context to the news and topics of the day. So the next question is from Alicia Gordon, who asks, do you have any advice on the right time to leave your employment, to pursue a startup full time? Do you have any stories on
1: when it's too early or too late? That's a really good question. First, I would note by saying in the general case, it's never too early or too late as we were talking about before context matters. So what I would say is there are two general pathways to becoming a successful founder one is that you start businesses at a young age and you just keep doing it over and over. You may get lucky the first time, but you're coming in with very little experience without as much social capital, without as much of a network, without as much financial resources. And you just kind of grind it out and you learn on the job and hopefully you figure it out eventually. And I think there are a lot of very common cases where that happens. People who are just naturally entrepreneurial often go for that approach. Let's call that the Chris model. Then the other one, and I think we're going to call this one the Yaniv model, <laughs> is you go through a more traditional career path, meaning you gain a lot of experience at industry and you're also at the same time gaining the social capital, gaining the network, and hopefully gaining some financial resources. You know, I started my career at Google. Before moving to scale ups and then moving into founding my own startup at the age of 40. I've sometimes called that the Benjamin Button career where you sort of start off at a big company and you kind of work your way down into smaller and younger companies and smaller and younger companies. And each time you're able to take the learnings you had at a bigger scale and help the company at one level of scale down grow into that way of doing things and i've actually found that to be a really useful model such that when i've become a founder at my age and level of experience i feel like and i guess the proof of the pudding will be in the eating but i feel like i know what i'm doing a lot more than i would have done if i was in my 20s and just doing this stuff for the first time i can see around corners in a way i couldn't have done before so there is no right way or wrong way here a lot of it is going to depend on your personal inclinations your personal appetite for risk, your learning style, and very much your financial and personal circumstances. Being a founder is a big financial hit early on, especially if you do it young. You're probably going to have a lot of difficulty raising capital. You're not going to be able to pay yourself anything. In fact, you'll probably be self-funding this thing for a while. And so that can be quite a stressful thing. It can be quite a strain. If you have dependents in your family, you may not be able to pursue that option at all. But I think my word of encouragement here is it's never too early. There are 18-year-old founders out there who are doing things I really admire. They may well succeed, but if they don't, they will learn a huge amount and then they'll do it again and again. And probably by the time they're in their 30s, they'll have a couple of big success stories behind them. And then there are people like me, and I'm not an outlier. A lot of people found their companies for the first time in their forties in their fifties. They are often able to be very successful as long as they are still open-minded. They're still learning. They can bring all that experience to what they do and they have a much better chance of getting things right sooner. And in a sense, catching up for the, the lost time in that way. So yeah, I really think if you feel you're ready, then you're ready. If you feel that you're not ready. But you're worried that you're missing your chance and it will be too late. I would say that's not the case. As long as you make sure you're always learning and you're building towards that point where you have the skill set and the resources and the network to become a founder, then you're doing well. I definitely resonate with the idea that this is
0: about context and then your personal circumstances really matter and your risk tolerance really matters and your family obligations really matter a lot. It ultimately has to be a personal choice. I guess the thing I would caution about that is that startups on the face of them are fundamentally about risk and risk taking. So if you are naturally conservative, they may generally just not be for you, actually. It's rare that you're going to feel comfortable to go jump into a startup. That's not a feeling where you're like, yeah, I feel totally ready for this and I'm totally comfortable about this. The startup experience is characterized by noticing something other people haven't noticed that seems like other people should be tackling, that is a little bit scary for you to go and do and run a bunch of experiments and iterations and pivots to try to make something work through your blood, sweat and tears, that is always going to feel like a risky proposition. And so I would just caution that if you are somebody who has a low tolerance for risk or someone who is hyper aware of risk, that that risk feeling is never going to fully dissipate. And if you carry that decision-making process throughout your startup journey, that you're going to undervalue opportunity costs, you're going to undervalue the benefits of making decisive actions. We've talked about all of these topics in the last few episodes. It's really, really important that you balance that out and you're aware of your own risk tolerance as you make those decisions.
1: I kind of reflect on myself here that within one person, there can be different levels of risk tolerance for those different types of risk. So I am personally, relatively risk averse, right? If I'd been a founder in my twenties, I had no financial resources. I may have worked at a startup for years, eaten into my meager savings and ended up with nothing. I don't think I would have been comfortable at that. I don't think I would have been good at that. But as someone who has, I guess, you know, what sometimes gets called fuck you money, right? It's like, okay, I'm not set for life, but I have some money put away. I feel much more comfortable taking risks, intelligent, sensible risks in my decision-making as a founder of the company, because my entire financial future is not staked on this. If it's a good outcome, I'll be very happy. If it's a negative outcome, I'll be, of course, disappointed and I will be worse off (laughs) than if it had been a good outcome, but I'm going to be able to keep putting food on the table and providing for my family and everything like that. And that's actually quite liberating the fact that i'm not taking strong personal risks here makes me more aggressive in taking intelligent risks with the company and i think that that's an interesting nuance here which is yes if you're just fundamentally risk averse in every way then being a founder is not for you but if you feel like you need to be personally de-risked before you can take the real risks the intelligent risks with your startup then make sure that you get some resources behind you first. And then you are freed up to do that.
0: It's interesting because my journey, as we joked about earlier, is it was the opposite of yours and I spent my time in Australia building one thing after the other from high school on to 25, 26 years old. And my personal story was that I had a family who was very supportive. I knew that I had them as a safety net. I relied on them pretty heavily in terms of living rent-free for a while. And I just took risk after risk after risk. And from my context, the bigger risk was not fulfilling my dreams, not pursuing the visions I had in my head, not bringing into the world, a thing that I wanted to bring into the world. Since I was very young, I would get obsessed with an idea or a problem. And I would try to manifest that into the world. And I left to Silicon Valley with literally my entire possessions fit into a suitcase and I showed up in Silicon Valley and moved into my first apartment. In San Francisco. That, that was the first time I actually had my own apartment. And that was quite a, an incredible journey. But having said all that, I actually regret not doing a little bit more of what you did, Yanev, which is to go somewhere along that journey, you know, the Googles or Facebooks or Ubers of the world and learn how they did it from the inside out. I spent a lot of time observing them from the outside and trying to reverse engineer what I could learn. But I think my time at Uber taught me things that I couldn't have learned any other way. And that would have served me very well in my earlier startups. From my point of view, I think the optimal journey would be to do a bit of a mix, to do some startup stuff, to do some big co stuff and go back and do some startup stuff or maybe some scale up stuff. Because what I'm personally concerned about is this kind of the calcification of all the bureaucracy, the process of the larger companies. And then when that net is taken out from you, it kind of feels like you're working without a rope. You don't have the resources you had at a Google or what have you. I think the way you got around that is you worked your way backwards so you kind of took the net out from under you one you know one gradation at a time which I think was very clever But yeah, for my temperament and my personality, I needed to get out there and start building my stuff. And yeah, failed more times than I care to admit. And it was definitely a fun, harrowing, exciting roller coaster ride of a career. But uh...
1: (laughs) I actually think the through line on this one is it's about your learning style. We talked about the risk appetite. I think that's a big part of it. But the most important thing, if you want to get to be a successful founder is you need to have learned a lot of things. And so you need to manage your career in a way that you are maximizing your learning over time and you learn different things at big companies, as scale ups, doing your own startup. And so the way you approach that and mix that is up to you. But the one thing you must avoid is to end up in a situation where you are not learning much. That is the true waste of time. And there's that saying, I can't remember where it comes from when they say, does this person have 10 years experience? Or do they have one year's experience 10 times over? right? Like you really want to maximize your career for learning and growth so that you become the person who can be a successful founder.
0: That is an excellent summary because I have encountered with a lot of friends where they're just really, really unhappy with their jobs. They don't feel like they're learning. They don't feel like they're being respected. They feel like they're the smartest person in the room, that no one's taking their advice or the company's making all these fundamental mistakes. (laughs) And they're there for just years and years of unhappiness. And I do think that that is an untenable situation. I think you're right that irrespective of your context, if you are at a place where you are not learning and you are not growing and you are not pushing yourself, you are almost certainly in the wrong place. And if you don't jump out into a startup, at the very least jump into a company or a role where you can resume your learning journey. If you are not learning, you're dying. There's another saying actually, which is you should either be learning or earning.
1: (laughs) Ideally both.
0: And ideally both. And that is really fundamental. So yeah, I really resonate with that, Yanev. I think that's really great advice. Putting aside the question of should you jump into a startup or not at this point in your career, if you are not learning and you're not growing, you should jump out of whatever it is you're doing into something else, depending on your risk tolerance and context.
1: Next question is from Roger in Sydney. And he asks, How important are strong sales skills for a founder? With founders like Adam Newman, who we just did an episode on, he recently raised $70 million for a new blockchain startup, even after the WeWork story. It seems like being able to tell a good story is one of the key parts of raising capital and startup growth. What are your thoughts on this? I would say
0: just to take a step back here and get a little bit existential on the audience. I think telling a good story is fundamental to human civilization. I think most of what you think of as truth and the context in which you live your life is a story someone told you and narratives kind of are the fundamental building blocks of the world in many ways. And so being able to unpack, analyze, reframe, and tell your own stories is an essential life skill for success. And I think that the best founders are some of the best storytellers. Because your startup, just like your life, your success, your career is hopefully one of the best stories you're going to tell. And you're going to have to tell that story over and over and over again to your employees, to your customers, to your partners, and to your investors. And so storytelling, I would describe as one of the key foundational skills of being a founder. Now, there are many other skills to being a founder. We've talked about engineering or technical founders. We've talked about business founders, product founders. Having one or more of those skills is very, very important as well. But storytelling, I think, is up there with the rest. Now, of course, you bump into a lot of founders who are shy or socially awkward or you know, Elon Musk is a kind of an awkward guy in public. Certainly Mark Zuckerberg was an incredibly awkward guy for most of his career. I met him early on in his career and I kind of almost watched him develop a personality, I feel like. And so there are examples you can point to where you go, well, that guy isn't a wonderful storyteller and that guy isn't an incredible, you know, uh, personable persona. But I think they tell stories in their own way. I think they tell stories with code. They tell stories by having really interesting ideas that reshape the way people think about problems. They tell stories using tools and techniques that are appropriate to them. So I'm not necessarily saying you have to be a showman who stands up on stage and, you know, can give a Ted talk, but you absolutely need to be able to construct a logical argument and in your own way, bring people along on a journey. In terms of what you see in your mind and what you're trying to create in the world?
1: As a founder, you're always going to be selling in some sense. So, first of all, let's leave Adam Newman out of this. I like to say that you don't learn from exceptional people because they are exceptions. And probably what made them successful is something that can't be emulated. It reminds me of all the people who think that the way to be like Steve Jobs is to wear turtlenecks and be a bit of an asshole. No, Steve Jobs successful because he was Steve Jobs and you are not. None of us are Adam Newman either. But as a founder, you are selling. If you're in the enterprise space, of course, you're selling directly to customers. But even if you're not, you need to be selling to investors. You need to be selling to candidates who you're trying to hire onto your team. So in that broad sense, storytelling as convincing people, as bringing people along on your journey is absolutely critical for a founder. And as you say as well, Chris, really for anybody who is trying to achieve something in this life that requires other people, which is nearly anything that is worthwhile. The next question comes
0: to us from Nicholas in Brisbane, who asks, there's a lot of talk about the next big thing. In your opinion, what are some of the companies to look out for that could become that next big thing?
1: Well, this sounds like a fun one. And I think anybody who tries to predict the future is on a bit of a fool's errand, but it's a fun fool's errand. So let's give it a go. I don't know about companies exactly, but in terms of hyped up trends, I think the one that really stands out for me as opening my eyes up at the moment is generative AI. And I'm talking about things like GPT-3 for text or DALI mid-journey stable diffusion for image creation. We have seen just massive and kind of scary progress in the ability to type a prompt and get either textual or visual content that really looks like it could have been created by a human. So I think these sorts of technologies are going to have a huge future in the creative industries in the same way that a lot of automation has come to more manual industries or more mechanical sorts of process and workflow. Now we see technology augmenting and also threatening, of course, but let's look at the positive side, augmented creative industries and people's creativity. But in terms of the next big thing and opportunities, I think any company that is able to really leverage generative AI in a way that enhances their product is going to have something very big on their hands. Canva had a big conference this week. They announced a bunch of new things. And one of the things they talked about was adding prompt-based generative AI features to the Canva suite. Now, I don't believe those are actually in product yet, but the idea would be instead of designing something, you would just tell the program, what to design in the same way that you might tell an agency at the moment, say, oh, could you make me a birthday card for my grandfather's 70th birthday or something like that? And it would just give you a few options. It would just create the whole damn thing. I think if they can pull that off, that will be massive. And any company that can really, in a native, non-contrived way, turn that power of generative AI into their product suite will be one of the next big things.
0: You took the words out of my mouth. I think the, the next big disruption, and it sounds weird to say the next disruption because it's really disrupting things already, is AI. I don't mean the kind of fanciful Terminator AI. I just mean machine learning and generative tools. It's affecting a lot of the tools we use today and we don't even know it from your Gmail kind of text hints all the way to uh, Dali 2. And I think we are going into a period of time that is extremely disruptive and fascinating and in some ways kind of scary. You know, I think if we think fake news is a problem now, just wait until Dali can generate photorealistic photos and videos and we just won't know what's real. Being able to harness those tools for good and to create almost countermeasure tools to sign and verify authenticity is going to be a really interesting space. I think another space that's really interesting is going to be genomics. I think Bill Gates was quoted in the last few years as saying if he was to get into technology today, he would be getting into genomics. And turning our biology into programmable software, for want of a better word, I think is going to change humanity as we know it over the next, let's call it 10 to 20 years. And then also on that time scale and this is still a pipe dream but i i think that the the idea that we look down at a piece of glass in our palm and then look up and try to map that data to the real world will seem as anachronistic as le- desktop computers versus being able to carry a supercomputer in our hand so what i mean by that is augmented reality where you don't have to map the directions from the piece of glass in your hand up into the real world you don't have to map the social networking profile In your feed to someone's face. You don't have to map uh, a recipe to the bowl in front of you. It's all just going to be right there presented in your peripheral vision. There's a long way to go to make that hardware actually work, but I think that'll be a fundamental computing shift of the kind of from desktop and laptops to mobile. I'm actually surprised that this other thing actually hasn't happened more so far, which is audio-based interfaces. When Apple released the AirPods for the first time. I actually predicted that audio interfaces would become the next big thing and that they would invest heavily, heavily, heavily in Siri and almost make the phone invisible. And whether either through a lack of trying or a lack of competency, they have not made Siri that good. But I think Google's on their way and the first person to build something that feels like a truly proactive voice assistant that comes with you during the day, that isn't this kind of passive on-demand experience, I think that will be game-changing and that'll be one of the next computing platforms. So it'll perhaps move from, you know, phones to audio to AR. That'll be a really interesting migration.
1: Yeah. Voice interfaces are one of those interesting ones. I feel they fall into the self-driving car category, which is, it seems like it's, Reasonably easy to get 90% of the way there, but that last 10% is just such a huge hill decline, right? And so I found with the Google Assistant, very sophisticated and clever, but still oh so dumb, you know? And so it's like, it's not worth using. And I know the team at Google have invested a huge amount into it, but I think it's a very difficult interface to get right. Uh, one thought I had, Chris, is two of the trends you mentioned, right? So we talked about generative AI and you talked about genomics and like, programmable genes and it just occurred to me that the convergence of those two could be incredible and also incredibly scary for humanity when you have AIs generating new life forms or modifying existing life forms that could be a very strange universe to live in. I think it will be extremely
0: exciting but I don't think it's so much about them generating new life forms as it is them quickly figuring out the root causes of diseases and weaknesses in the human genome and solving for those and that'll be interesting if you want to see a great science fiction movie on this subject watch the movie Gattaca
1: oh that's a good one yeah
0: with Uma Thurman Ethan Hawke and Jude Law it's actually one of my favorite films of all time and it's a really fantastic thriller and a real thought piece so check it out So that was an awesome set of questions, thanks to all those who sent them in, and apologies if we didn't get to your question, but please keep sending in your listener questions because we want to do these episodes maybe once a month, every few weeks, and answer the burning questions you have.
1: Now, if you have a lot of burning questions and you want access to Chris more than just on the occasional episode of the Startup Podcast, I know this is something that you do to help companies. So Chris, how can people work with you?
0: Yeah, I have carved out some of my time to work with startups on an advisory basis. So you can find out more about that at chrissard.com advisory or follow me on all the social medias on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and even on Instagram. How about you, Yanev?
1: I'm very active on LinkedIn and Twitter, different content overall. So I'd love a connection on LinkedIn and also a follow on Twitter where I'm at YBernstein. Awesome. That was fun. We'll catch you in the next one. Thanks, Chris. See you later.